1: Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant Black woman magic mind
0: and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us, and we appreciate you. Let's go. Well, sis, we're back for another week.
1: We are back for another week, and let me just come straight out the gate <laughs> and comment on your hair. Mm. And you know, I, I I feel like in the last like few weeks we've acquired some some new listeners. So whenever I, we refer to Mahalia and Jules, mm-hmm. Mahalia is Ashley's hair, and Jules is my hair. Even though she don't really be getting as much airtime as. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Mahalia. I mean, she is. I mean, all kinds of. She's giving me Diana Ross, fabulous. <laughs> She's giving me Tracy Ellis Ross. Also, I mean, she's just giving. She's just giving.
0: Talk to Man. me about her. Oh Lord! Well, we're we're both kind of recoiling from so many profound compliments at once. <laughs> um, but I accept it with deep gratitude and a lot of respect for you and Jules. Always here, keeping it classy. Right, Mahalia you know. can be all over the place sometimes, but you know, we're we're a couple days um, post twist outs. So she's a little frizzy because I was working out earlier. But
1: okay, workout.
0: You know, one of the things that I I appreciate, particularly when it comes to compliments from you, is that we met literally like, you know, probably a week after I did the big chop. So, you know, you've seen Mahalia from like, you know, the the teeny weeny afro phase. She was a toddler.
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. And Jules was just, you know, Jules was dang near a fade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: that's right.
1: Uh, oh, and you know what? Um, just for our for our listeners, Jules is spelled like a jewel, like that you have on a ring. J e w e l s. Mm. That's by right. J e w e l s. Yeah, jewel. Jules.
0: I'm just gonna nod yes because I can't do like spelling in my head. <laughs> I
1: hope I spelled it right because like, I'm correcting people but spelling it wrong. Um, But yeah, yeah, but like like jewelry, but jewels, that's how you spell it. Just in case you're ever wondering it. I've gotten a few, you know, J-U-L-E-S's from Mm -hmm. people. But, you know, she's a a jewel, jewel.
0: Absolutely. We humbly correct. Uh, See the important
1: things we talk about? Yeah. (laughs) Well, as you know, I had a procedure done recently and I am doing some self care right now. So I am home recuperating. And while I do feel quite well considering, I am very humbled by what it's like to be a patient, man. Hmm. Man, I I was a patient recently, and <laughs> I would like you to know that I made a comeback from the time that I was a horrible patient mm. when I delivered my second son and got fired by a nurse, um, no. to that nurse, whoever you are, wherever <laughs> you are. I'm sorry. But <laughs> I want you to know that my nurses this time, I mean, one of them didn't, like, she was like, man, you're such a great patient. You are wow. awesome. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was so good. I was just like, what is your name? Oh, great. <laughs> no, I'm fine. Is the room cold? Even though it's freezing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's humbling being a patient.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, for one, am so grateful for, for the comeback. Glad that everything worked out well. Glad that you got to make up for the last time you were a horrible patient. It seems like you went above (laughs) and beyond to rectify that. That's right. That's right.
1: That's right. Well, you know, it's very vulnerable to be a patient. And, um, I think that also, all jokes aside, you know, as, as we live and we experience things and we, um, sit, as we've talked about many times before, we, we sit with our loved ones when they are the patient. You just realize how hard it is from every angle. It's hard from the angle of the patient. It's hard from the angle of the caregiver mm-hmm. who wants to be there for the patient. Um, it's just a lot of moving parts. And um, I just have a deep an abiding respect now for some of the tiniest things that I used to overlook. Things mm. like light on or light off. <laughs> socks on or socks off. <laughs> um yeah, some of these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm grateful um for for health today. Absolutely. And uh I know that everything is fine until it's not and um knock on wood as of today, things are fine.
0: Yeah. I was actually having this conversation with um, a colleague of mine uh, over the weekend and we're just talking about like how much of what we do, what we prescribe, what we recommend is so outside of our own experience as Mm -hmm. providers of things that we expect patients to be able to do, you know, kind of casually talking about go to the emergency room or go get the scan done and what that actually means for a person's life and a person's experience is often, unfortunately, too many times lost on us. So I'm here for that.
1: Um, I was also here for Miss um, Robin Rihanna Fenty, um, levitating on a platform, wearing my favorite color red,
0: mm-hmm.
1: revealing to the whole 200 million people watching that, oh yeah, also I'm getting ready to have me another baby. <laughs> and and yeah, you know, people were mad that her two-step looked a little lazy. But you know what? If you are Rihanna and you are as pregnant as she appeared to be on that platform, and she was up in the air and didn't look scared. Mm-hmm. I was here for all of it. I am a fan of Rihanna, and I, I was I was given all the snaps, claps, and all the things. I was <laughs> here for it. Did you watch it? Did you watch well, the um, Rihanna Bowl?
0: I have to admit, you know, the one thing that I regret about not having, like, cable TV because I strictly stream, oh, no. I know, oh, is no. live sports, live music. At the same time, I think I pieced together enough free clips from the internet to where I got the gist. <laughs> It looked amazing. And Uh, I mean, like, but also like, what did people expect? Like Rihanna was going to deliver.
1: Yeah. I loved all
0: of it. I was also very
1: excited that Black History was made with two Mm -hmm. Black quarterbacks facing off. So really, when people kept asking me who I was rooting for, I was like, I'm rooting for Rihanna. (laughs) (laughs) I was rooting for both teams. I was rooting for Rihanna. But, you know, shout out to the Kansas City Chiefs fans out there, I guess.
0: Amen. Wherever y'all are, I don't know any of them, but
1: uh, I know a lot <laughs> of them. I know a lot of them, but you know I'm a fair weather fan. So yeah, like, right when you're about to win, I become your fan. I'm like, yay! Come on,
0: Mahomes,
1: <laughs> it's your time, Classic. brother. Yeah. Yes.
0: Well, I got to give one more shout out. Okay. Um, and that is to the the UCSF Radiology Equity Council. They Aww. invited me to do a talk last week. And, you know, even though I was the one speaking, they were definitely the ones filling my cup. And they listened to the podcast. So I have to send what? a shout out here to Vishal, Irene, Bilal, all my folks on the council who, who came out. Thank you guys so much.
1: That's what's up. Shout out to the Equity Council of Radiology at UCSF for rocking with us. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary superstars who listen to this podcast, as you know, it is a really wonderful day. In addition uh, to there being new Super Bowl champions, another champion is getting ready to take the stage. <laughs> I should make myself laugh because I'm so. Ouch. <laughs> okay, wait. Let me. T- All right, y'all. As you know, um, it is Ashley Week. I get to sit back, relax, along with you, listen, learn, grow. But um, my sister, Mm. do tell me, what today is the what?
0: The what is chaos. Ooh, I like that word. Yeah. Chaos. Sound fitting. So this story is actually, I think, either somewhere in the end of my second year, early in my third year, otherwise my, my last year of residency. And so they would have us spend a month rotating within the emergency department for um, our safety net hospital. And so that's what I was doing for that time. And, you know, even though it's, it's a very busy kind of fast paced environment, because the work is kind of shared between emergency room trainees and non-emergency room trainees, the, the medical trainees like myself can kind of select for the cases that tend to be a little bit more medicine focused. And sometimes the D unfortunately has to serve in a primary care capacity. Those are the, the the cases that I tended to pick up. But, you know, every so often there would be shifts where there weren't any emergency room residents because they were either in a teaching environment or mm-hmm. On this particular evening, I think it was their, their graduation, which they obviously deserve to have that time off to, to celebrate. But that meant that the bulk of the ED cases and, and um, management was going to be between me and one other medicine trainee along with an er- emergency room attending. Mm-hmm. And so basically any like non-surgical or trauma cases that came through were my responsibility. And it was a little uh, nerve wracking. That evening, I was working 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And from the time I got there, we were off to the races. It was a really busy shift. You know, I remember just kind of trying to keep my head above water with the many patients who were were coming in. And we're kind of nearing the end of the shift in the midst of kind of this chaos. And we get word that there is an ambulance coming with someone who's actively coding, meaning someone had a cardiac arrest outside the hospital and they haven't regained their their um heart function yet. Okay. And so I'm going to be the one leading this case. And you know, at this point, I have never been a code leader. This -hmm. will be my first time. So normally, you know, you you have rotations where you're running codes, at least for us, it tends to happen more in our last year of residency, but there are certain rotations where it happens during second year. And so this was one of those times where I'm going to be leading a code. I have to let folks know that, you know, whatever you've seen on TV, it is not that. Okay. <laughs> Often there's a lot of chaos. To, to be frank, I like, think there is a protocol. There are certain rules that are assigned. And for the most part, you try to bring order into the chaos. But it's just a lot of high energy, fast paced, fast thinking. And um, a lot of times it's not pretty. It's It can be brutal. And so for me, being fairly new at this, I felt a lot of gratitude because, you know, running a code in the emergency room is not necessarily like running a code on the hospital floor. Like you have the benefit of knowing the patient is coming in. And so you have kind of some time to prepare, like delineate roles before things really start popping off. Right. And so I'm in the resuscitation room. We're getting everything together. We've got the crash cart. We've got respiratory there, the nursing staff, pharmacy. We've got everybody in place and it's kind of like this calm before the storm Mm. as you're just like waiting in anticipation for you know the the patient to come through and so you hear the ambulance pull up you hear the wheels from the gurney kind of coming down from the back hallway and you know coming in full speed ahead actively in chest compressions and so in the midst of this I'm not even like really fully aware of like who this patient is, what they look like. All I know is that this is a middle-aged woman who had a cardiac arrest for some reason and has been coding for at least 10, 15 minutes en route to the hospital. Hmm. And so we start the process, you know, we've got a line, we've got an airway, we're given epinephrine, we've got chest compressions going, we're checking you know, for a pulse, trying to see if there's any signs of, of ROSC we've
1: turned of spontaneous circulation. There we
0: go. I was like, please help <laughs> me out here because, you know, I don't remember still. Uh-huh, it's all good. Yeah, but it was pretty quickly looking like, you know, this was not going to go in the direction that we hoped. I think when you're in an active code situation, there's a certain energy that you can kind of pick up on where, like, even without words, you can feel like everybody's kind of thinking the same thing, like we're going through the motions, but this is starting to feel more and more futile. Mm-hmm. We learned that the family had been following very closely behind EMS and were like actually in the waiting room at that time. My attending who was there tapped me and we're kind of talking on the side and we're just like, you know, it doesn't look like this patient is going to make it. Mm-hmm. It might be worth trying to at least, you know, <clears throat> give the family an update before we officially call it. Hmm. And so I had, you know, agreed. And it seemed like everybody in the room also was in agreement. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bow out. I'm going to be the one to go talk to the family. As I'm walking, like quickly trying to figure out what I'm going to say or how I'm going to start this conversation. I hear someone (laughs) come up behind me and it's actually the medical student who had been with us that night. I, I don't, remember what year this individual was. I remember he was you know, very kind, very attentive, very hardworking. And he asked me if he could observe me doing the conversation with the family. I really love working with medical students. I definitely appreciate students who are engaged and kind of proactive about their own learning. So shout out to this medical student. At the same time, it is sometimes hard <laughs> as the educator to model what you hope to be a good interaction, but also not really having a lot of control in a situation that is feeling a little bit more and more chaotic. Given the, the, the time pressure that we were under, knowing that this woman was actively coding, you know, I didn't really take the time to debrief with this medical student beforehand or kind of talk about my approach. I was just like, all right, we're going, follow me. So I get into the waiting area and there are, if I can remember, probably about three or four family members and they're just sitting like kind of hunched over and there's just so much tension and like Mm -hmm. worry and heartbreak. So I walk in, calmly introduce myself and and sit down and just kind of summarize like what we know so far. And, you know, trying to lead the conversation into the the reality that, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to save your loved one. Now would be a good time to, like, you know, touch base with family. Is there anything else we can do or things that you want to know or want us to talk to? As I'm having this conversation, it's clear, like, you know, the, the family members who are there are not, they're not really in a state where they can really process what's happening. And they actually asked me, like, can we actually pause this until... A certain family member, one of the the aunts was going to come and it seemed like she was kind of like the matriarch of sorts. Sure. And they really, really wanted her to be present first. They're like, she's almost here. Can we just wait a few more minutes? And I was like, that's fine. So literally within a couple minutes, thankfully, it wasn't much of a wait. This woman comes bursting through the door. Oh and my. you can immediately tell she's the one who's kind of running the show here. She's... That's Maria. Exactly. Coming through middle-aged well put together had her heels on like you know kind of like this this power move so I stand up to greet this woman she walks right past me and to my medical student who oh. is a tall white male oh no and I did says, not see this coming oh, and wow. she says <laughs> you must be the doctor
1: oh my you're kidding me
0: no so I did not have racial concordance with this family. And again, you know, I'm a late second year, rising third year resident. At this point, I, you know, I have built, built a lot of confidence in myself and my clinical acumen. But in one fell swoop, this woman knocked me down a couple notches. And so, and of course, you know, Is happening within the context of this terrible situation in which their their loved one is actively dying, you know, kind of going through the motions of futile code. And we're trying to talk to the family, like in that moment. What I remember with full clarity is how I felt Mm. in that moment. And what I felt myself doing was like trying to increase my psychological size. Suddenly I'm standing taller. I immediately go up to her, it's like, actually, I'm the doctor. And I'm speaking with some sense of authority. It doesn't quite feel authentic, more so in the sense that I am more concerned in that moment about how I'm being perceived than how like I'm approaching this very desperate situation in which I'm having to empathize with the fact that their loved one is actively dying. And so it was a tough conversation even to try to reintroduce kind of where I was at earlier with the earlier family members and as we were kind of like re-engaging, that's when the attending then walked into the room and was just like, I'm so sorry. We just, we just had to call it. Needless to say, everything about the situation felt chaotic and wrong. You know, not only was I feeling my own acute imposter syndrome, mm. I didn't even really know hardly anything about this patient. I couldn't even put together what their face looked like. Mm. I think I may have known their first name. You know, It was just like a really difficult situation that felt very, very malaligned to everything I know and feels right to me about medicine in terms of Mm. knowing the patient, knowing their story and approaching family members with care and empathy. Instead, I'm trying to deliver this news while also making myself feel like I'm in control of a very chaotic situation. And so at that point, you know, the cat was out of the bag. The patient had passed. The family was aware they're acutely, you know, distressed and, you know, kind of let out the room to be able to, you know, spend some time with their loved one. I walked out with my attending and my medical student. And essentially like the debrief was that was terrible. And then we went back to caring for the myriad of patients that were still waiting to be seen. And I think I got out of the hospital probably around, I don't know, 2, 3 a.m. And I went home. I compartmentalized that entire situation. I had two shots of whiskey and I did a puzzle. And then I went to sleep. Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. Chaos looks a lot of ways, doesn't it?
0: It sure does.
1: Because it can be like just the outward chaos that you see in a space like a code. And then there's like internal chaos that's going on with what you are feeling and what you are thinking in an immediate moment um, when something is happening. And this, it was chaos even when the student said, "Hey, I want to come with you," and um, you were sort of impulsively going down the hall to try to figure out what to do. Um, so, because I'm senior to you, can can we unpack this a little bit in chunks? Would that be of okay? course? So the first part and this is more like what i would go back and tell younger me now that i'm older me you know now i'm really into just wearing my vulnerability and wearing what i don't know and my uncertainty just wide open on my sleeve my residents um, who have worked with me they know i do this all the time so for example when that student said hey can i come with you i might turn to that student and say okay listen i have no idea what's what's about to happen in that room what I do know is that whoever is on the other side of that room, if they love this person, this is about to be one of the worst days of their entire life. And I am getting ready to step into that. I know very little about this patient because she just got here through a 911 call. What I'm thinking right now is how do I, you know, remain professional and tell you what you need to know, but also reconcile that with the fact that you're having a worst day of your life. You know, so I, there's no playbook for that. Yeah. And every person reacts differently to that. Um, now, so that's one part. But but then when you finally kind of get your, you, you know, amp yourself up and get into the room mm-hmm. and now here comes, you know, big mama and she <laughs> walks in and she doesn't think you're the doctor. I mean, that, that level of internal chaos, I don't really, I mean, I think the only thing I could have really done in that moment was just try to steal myself for a few moments because- yeah. Um, I love that you thought about the fact that, hey, wait a minute, um, the most important person right now is that patient who is pulseless and, and trying to like sh- reach for threads of life, like not how I feel. However, from a wellness perspective, you as an individual working hard on that team, you know, that stunk, man, you mm-hmm. know, and um I think in while in the moment, there's not much that you could have done, I do think in a later debrief, now in 2023, where we now have tools to upstand for people, mm-hmm. that student could have been an upstander too. That student could have been like, no, I'm actually not the doctor, this is the doctor. Mm-hmm. I'm the I'm medical student that's working with her. Um, so I, I do want people that are in a more junior position. You can upstand. if somebody If somebody says something to your attending or to your senior resident, um, or somebody senior to you that, that is insensitive culturally or racially or whatever it is, you you can stand up for them. So that would be something else that I would hope now mm-hmm. somebody would do. Um, and then I'm curious to know when your attending arrived, did you have gender or racial concordance with your attending? No. Okay, so then what this did was basically just kind of flicked you over to the side. And again, I I, I still think that as attending physicians, whether, whether it's the chaos of a cold or not, we have to be in the habit of presenting our senior residents as authority figures um, to our patients, especially mm-hmm. as you start to look older, because now that I have some gray in my hair, mm-hmm. I walk in a room, people don't mistake me for a medical student anymore, you know, they, they know I'm old enough to be leading a team, but I, every single time I enter the room with a senior resident, any senior at Emory who's worked with me knows this is true, I say, Hi, my name is Dr. Manning, I'm one of the two senior doctors working on the team Mm. taking care of you, this is our other senior doctor, Dr McMullen and together we've been taking care of of you or your loved one or whomever. And when I get ready to ask for questions what questions do you have for Dr McMullen Mm. before we go. Well, I'm going to step out, but our other senior doctor is going to be right here. And I'll actually step back sometimes just so that they can regard the resident as the senior doctor. So that might have been a, a missed opportunity for that attending. And I recognize that, again, the acuity of the situation, the focus needed to be on the family. But you know, if we want to do this in an environment where we are um, training people how to do it, every moment, even the most chaotic ones, Somewhere on a post-it note in our head has to be that this is a teachable moment, and Streets is watching. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you, not unsurprisingly, like unpacked that perfectly. Like there were so many points in this experience, even in the midst of the chaos, to take one to two minutes just to breathe and try to figure out where we could teach each other to kind of rise to this occasion a little bit better. In the midst of all this, one of the things that that you pointed out that I think can't be told enough is it can't be on the person who is actively being aggressed, microaggressed, macroaggressed to pump the brakes in the situation, even if that person is senior. Right. And I think that this happens not infrequently, especially in the inpatient setting where patients are sick, they're scared, they got a lot going on, they say stuff and can feel kind of jolting in the moment when it's directed at someone who is supposed to have some sort of authoritative stance, but the role of upstandership is everybody. And so, you know, and, and to be honest, like I don't remember if that student said anything. I just know what I said in that moment to try to step in and kind of regain control of the room. But I think in my own hindsight, I wish that the student and I had at least had a chance to debrief that afterwards. I think that this is also what happens in the midst of the chaos of medical training is that, you know, we experience these things that are so emotionally fraught, and it doesn't seem like there's any time or space to deal with it. So you just squish it down and move on, which is exactly yeah. what I did. And there's always patience to be seen. There's always notes to write. There's always whiskey to drink. And so <laughs> you you make do. but, you know, we have to get in the practice of you know self reflection and talking to each other about these times that are really uncomfortable but we need to learn from.
1: And I think I think one of the things you point out is one of the things that people don't realize that it's not the person committing the microaggression or macroaggression or whatever micro insult whatever thing you want to call it on this day that that is the most hurtful. It is almost always if there was someone there to bear witness that nobody did anything. Yeah, That to me is always the part that stings the most. And I, I think that we just have to have some tools, you know, to throw a flag on the play.
0: Yes. And, it, yes, and, yes.
1: The, and throwing the flag on the play is not always like a big confrontation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It can just be like a reaction, like on your face, like, whoa, you know, maybe not in that situation, yeah. but. Sometimes it can just be really direct. I'm not, I'm actually not the doctor, that's the doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, and if that lady who did not have racial concordance with you in Northern California walked into that space and had never seen a black physician with braids in her hair, standing in a room talking about she the doctor. I mean, she she, she just did what she had seen, yep. you know? Mm-hmm. So it probably wasn't meant to throw shade, but. That individual could have definitely, you know, and again, being a student, you often don't know what to say, but,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, who knows? And maybe that student was like, gosh, is it my place to say something? You know, Certainly. you never know.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, it just goes to show that it's it's not always easy to know what to do in in the moments. And, you know, again, particularly given the the acuity, the chaos, the context of that conversation, that's challenging even for the best of us who do this yeah. work. But I always, always, always emphasize, like, even if you don't know what to say in the moment, say something, even even if it's afterwards, even if it's an email or follow-up or something. And that's the only thing that I wish had been done differently, to be honest.
1: Well, fortunately, I think we are providing a lot more education to people on how to stand up. You Mm -hmm. know, there's obviously the direct way that you can come to people. You can distract people, you can delay. And then you can also have this sort of, display of discomfort and you can delegate you know to somebody else so all those d's you can find in the literature but i I just think it's really important to do something and i think every person no matter what should display discomfort Mm. Um, particularly if it's something where a person is trying to be funny or something like that you could just not laugh or make it very clear that that was not that was not what was supposed to happen yeah, And sometimes that's just enough to right the wrong. I mean, I know when I have made the mistake of saying or doing the wrong thing, just having somebody make one little face, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the cringe emoji real, real fast yep. um, is just enough to get you, get you back on track and realize, oh wait, I shouldn't have said that.
0: Certainly. Yeah. Well, sis, thank you for, for hearing me out and, you know, unpacking that with me. that's a, a story I realize I've been holding on to for a minute.
1: Yeah. Well, the beautiful thing is that in 2023, there are a lot more doctors who look like you and a lot higher likelihood that our patients have come in contact with a doctor who looks like one of us. Yeah. But if you listen into this podcast and you are a person who comes from historic privilege and somebody that people might reflexively think is the doctor, use your position to be an upstander and, you know, say something
0: do something yes. strong cosine
1: boom <laughs> all right well i'm about to go uh lay on my couch and watch me a little bit of netflix because i have a little bit more time for my recuperation yes and uh for my wellness you know <laughs>
0: I'm gonna watch
1: love is blind <laughs> Don't tell nobody.
0: Right. That's definitely going to be included in this episode.
1: Uh, All right, sis. I love you. I appreciate you.
0: All right, sis. Love you too. Enjoy Uh your recuperation. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special
1: thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats.
0: Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturness and the Clinical Problem Solvers, our Med Twitter fam. And especially, shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember,
1: we see you and you are enough.
0: Holla. Holla!